You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Look at some things in Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> you know, this Bible is a, boy, what a wonderful book. And that's an understatement. Uh, I was mentioned here, David, about having New Year's resolutions. Something I encourage people to do is get into a Bible reading plan. I know the church has encouraged that here. You know, a little fact is that if you uh, read the Bible, they say, four out of seven days during the week, four out of seven, there's a transformation in your life. They notice there's a difference between three out of seven versus four out of seven. There's something about a majority. And you can read through the whole New Testament in a year if you read a chapter a day, five out of seven days. Take Monday through Friday, and if you, what you miss, you can catch up on Saturday and Sunday. But that would be a great goal if you've never done so, is just to read through the New Testament uh, in of course, the course of the year. Well, we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament. We're through a series in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel for Everyone. And we're going to look at an example of Jesus coming to the home of a Pharisee. Now, uh, the word Pharisee is an interesting word, and it refers to an individual, kind of individual during Jesus' time. I want to read this to you. This is, I caught this off of the internet, which is where you get all your information, of course. Uh, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were an influential religious sect within Judaism in the time of Christ and the early church. They were known for their emphasis on personal piety, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word meaning separated. Their acceptance of oral tradition in addition to the written law. That's what they were uh, devoted to. And their teaching that all Jews should observe all 600 plus laws in the Torah, including the rituals concerning ceremonial purification. The Pharisees were mostly middle class businessmen and leaders of the synagogues. That's who they were. There's a man named Jim Daly who is, uh, directs the uh, ministry Focus on the Family, and I really like this statement. He said that, you know, when you look in the Gospels, it seems like Jesus had two major message, messages, believe in Jesus and don't be a Pharisee. Those are the two major lessons. Well, we're going to look at what it is to be a Pharisee here this morning, and I want to look at four traits, four traits of a Pharisee, and as we go through this, I know as I went through this this last week, I thought, oh boy. This is hitting home. This is really hitting home. Uh, so what I'm going to do, normally we have you stand up and read the passages. I'm going to do something a little different here today. I'm going to just read the passages little by little, and they make comments on it here. So starting in Luke chapter 14, if you could turn there, Luke 14, and starting in verse 1, the first point I like to say in terms of a trait of a Pharisee, religious rules are more important than people. Here's what Jesus says. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply 
to these things. They adhered to this rule of the Sabbath. This was more important to them than really caring for these, this individual. Really what was going on is they were looking at him, they were wondering, was he going to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus, he could read their minds. He understood what was going on. And they were ready to accuse him of doing something wrong. But this is such a tendency. I know for, for all of us, we have our little religious rules that we adhere to, and we lose sight of this matter of that, you know, God just cares for people. The, the whole law was built upon two major desires of God, which is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as yourself. Uh, <clears throat> I remember a number of years ago, I was visiting a church. It was out in California, and attended the church and walked in. I had my Bible with me, and there was this uh, homeless, seemed like a homeless woman that was outside the church, and she was kind of conspicuous out there, just kind of seeing her there. And I remember just walking into the church. They were meeting at a school, and uh, I sat down, and this, uh, this woman, she came in, and she sat down a few rows ahead of me, and uh, she just seemed a little different than everybody else in, in the congregation. And when the man was given the announcements, kind of like Rich was doing just now, she went up, and she actually sat right here, right in the front, and, it was, and, he, and the guy was giving the announcements was kind of like this, startled. Well, it was all kind of a show in some ways. What, what they were doing, they were, she was part of, the, part of the act, as it were. Uh, what the purpose of the whole message was, was are you more concerned about just being religious and coming to church and so on? Or are you really, really concerned about people? That's what that was about. And, and Jesus was saying that here. Are we more concerned about religious rules or are we concerned about people? So that's one trait of being a Pharisee. Let me give you a second trait. You value religious status. You value religious status. Starting in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to your friend, to say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table, at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. At this particular dinner, this uh, ruler of the Pharisees had all of his Pharisee friends and lawyers with him. And so people were wanting to, I think in the message it talks about they elbowed their way to kind of get the best spot. And we can do that as well. I can do that as well. You know, how am I viewed? What's uh, how would, uh, what's my status in this religious community? I remember as a young Christian being involved in the church, and it seemed like people were kind of trying to go up the church corporate ladder, as it were, you know, I'll be the small group leader, and maybe the home group leader, and then eventually an elder, and blah, 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 and all the way up, and it was looking for, you know, just the approval of, of men. And that's a tendency that we can have, I can have. I remember when <clears throat> uh, I was appointed as an elder years ago, uh, this was 
I was so glad this man did this with me. I may, you may have heard me share this before, but he said, you know, when, you were, when hands were laid on you at that point, it reminded me in the Old Testament how when they laid hands on uh, the, the, the sheep and the oxen before they slaughtered them, that's what it reminds me of. And, and I, I thought that, that was from God. That was very good from God. This is not some privileged position. That's not the idea of being a leader in the church. The leader is to be the greatest servant of all. And i got to tell you something that happened to me about a year and a half ago. I, I read something that was, it really, really stunned me. It really made me think. I was reading a book by, actually they were Canadian, and they did a study uh, on the topic of narcissism. Narcissism, you know, just focusing so much on myself, you know, and just, I'm the center of the world kind of thing. Pride. And evidently in counseling and, and just analyzing people is kind of a clinical definition of narcissism, and I can't begin to tell you what that was, but that's what this book was dealing with. Well, <clears throat> this was, these were actually Christians, and they were analyzing this, and they said that maybe 2 or 3% of a population would fit what we called a narcissist. This was what was so challenging. But they said amongst pastors it was 30%. Oh, wow. And I began thinking about that. I thought, hmm, I can understand it. I mean, just look, look right now. Just look what's happening right now. I'm standing up here. I'm talking to you. You're listening to me. You're not talking, you know, we're not involved in a conversation. Uh, I, it's so easy in this system for me to think, I am the dispenser of wisdom and truth, and you're here just to kind of, Take it in, you know. And, and that's the way church can be. Boy, what a temptation there is for that. Now, that's why I know in this church we have, you know, there's a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors, and a lot of people speaking, and that's very, very important. It's very, I think it's very critical. But I can understand how in a typical situation when you have a man, he's come up there every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday giving messages, how narcissism can really build, build in there. And Phariseeism is just, I'm, I'm concerned what people think of me, and I like my status. It is so common oftentimes for those in that kind of setting that once they leave that, their, their life falls apart because now they have no meaning. And, and uh, that's, that's really very sad. But that's a tendency, a trait of a, of a, of a uh, Pharisee is they're, they're concerned about religious status. Let me go over a third trait. You give only to people who will benefit you. You give only to people who will benefit you. Starting in verse 12, Jesus said, He said also to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I think a trait of that Phariseeism is just we kind of have our little group here and it's just, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, no, no, what you do is... Uh, we have a very radical love where we give expecting 
nothing in return. This is a, a, a trait that Jesus wants us all to have. Um, <clears throat> getting back to this matter of uh, uh, even pastors, and again, that's what I work with. I work with pastors. Uh, it, it, I can tell you right now, I can say this right now because there's so many pastors not here today. Chris is on a, uh, uh, he's with, his son got married and other pastors aren't here. Um, but I want you to know one of the greatest challenges for someone who is a pastor is when he's paid. It's really one of the hardest things in the world. I, I'm, I'm always working through this. Am I doing this uh, in order to just get a paycheck? You know, is that why I'm doing this? Or am I doing this really because I care about the people? Um, and, and, you know, do I just focus on people that are going to pay me? Or am I caring about people that are not going to pay me? And I just, I, don't, I know it kind of plays in your mind. It can be very, very challenging. One thing that's very encouraging about this particular church, uh, and it's very unique in really many ways, is that everybody who is an elder in this church, and a pastor in this church, joined the church before they became on staff, came on staff. That's very unique. That's a very unique feature. And so at least that's been tested, that people have been giving, expecting nothing in return. And so if they are being paid, it wasn't in order to, you know, uh, it's not a job, in other words. <clears throat> Interesting story about a, a great man in the history of the church. His name is George Mueller. You may have heard his name before. Uh, George Mueller was uh, a man who, a tremendous man of prayer and faith, and he had some or orphanages in England. And uh, his uh, spiritual journey is a fascinating one. What happened was, uh, Mueller, he was in Prussia, I believe. He's Prussian, uh, German area. And he decided he wanted to be a minister. And so uh, he started uh, being trained for being a minister. Uh, and the reason he was doing it is because at the time, it was a great job. It was a wonderful job to have. And so he started uh, proceeding in this way. There was only one problem. He didn't believe in Jesus. <laughs> that was a big issue, you know. And so he was at this seminary. And while he's at the seminary, he, f he came across these Christians. And they were meeting in a home, in a little house church. And they had a genuine faith in Jesus. And it was in that context that he became a believer in Jesus Christ. An interesting story. But, you know, he had this kind of pharisaical pattern that he was going to. I'm, I'm just in this for the money, you know. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Watch out for that trait of just doing things in order to get back. Or, you know, I come to church because that's where my, my business relationships are. Or whatever it might be. These are ten, temptations that I think all of us have who really come from a religious uh, background. Let me give you the fourth trait that I saw from this passage. And this is really the most important one, is you care more about God than your, more about yourself than God. You care more about yourself than God. Jesus concludes this dinner talk that he has with this story. When one of those who reclined a table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. These individuals that Jesus talks about, they were concerned about their field, uh, maybe their net worth, perhaps, might say is analogous to today. They were concerned about their oxen, their business that they were doing. They were concerned about their wife, their, their, their family. All very good things in, in its own context. But they were so concerned about them that they weren't coming to the banquet, which really symbolizes you know, coming to God, coming to be with him. And so the, uh, the one who's holding the feast, of course, the picture here is God himself. He says, well, go bring others in. You know, bring in the, the, the lame, the poor, the blind, and they could do that. He says, we've already done that. We've already gone out to the streets and the lanes and done that. He says, well, don't just do that. Go out to the highways. And in other words, I think the con- what he's saying here is it's like, he, it's like you, you've already gotten everybody here from Linworth Road and 161. We need to go way out. Go way out into the countrysides and bring all those in as well. And so you see the heart of God is to fill his house. And that's really God's desire. His, his desire is that everything, Everything that has breath will praise the Lord. That's the last prayer in the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That every knee would bow. That every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the heart of God. That's what's on his heart. But really, I can have to say that we get religious. and We're more concerned about just our own little group here. In our own little world, we become very myopic. I'm reminded of uh, William Carey, who was considered the father of modern missions. He was a Baptist, and he wanted to go to India to share the gospel, and he got a lot of pushback and opposition even from the religious community. Well, if God really wants the people in India to, to know Jesus, uh, you know, he, he, can, he can do it on his own way. You know? And so there's just this... There, but William Carey, he had the heart of God. I just want to see everyone come and believe in Jesus. And so having what's on God's heart on our heart. Well, I don't know about you, but I look at these four traits, you know, religious rules, religious status, uh, doing things for my own sake ultimately, really loving myself more than God. I kind of feel bad about myself. I do. Um, and I don't know what, how you feel about this. I could just end the message right now, and that would be it. But you'd say, well, this is bad advertising. I think the title of the service was, uh, the series is, this is good news for everyone. Not very good news. So 
Someone said that for church services, people feel bad coming in, they feel worse coming out. And that's not the goal of a church service. So there is some good news here, some very, very good news that I wanted to, to focus on. I, but I want to focus on this a little bit more, is there is a tendency, I think, for those of us who are part of a religious community, and you are here, I mean, it's, it's 11 o'clock or 1045 or whatever the time is here on a Sunday morning, and you are here. Uh, you are not sitting around watching TV or doing something else. You are here. You are part of the faithful. You are the religious ones here, right? The mere fact that you're here this morning. So uh, there's a tendency to go the other way where we can really get guilty. Uh, we can feel really bad about our lives. We are susceptible to those elements in our culture, some within the church or outside the church, that can say, look at that hypocrite. You know, look at that person who claims this, but they're not really doing this. They claim they love God, but look what they're doing. And, and so even the more we become followers of Christ, we can, we can be even more feeling worse about ourselves. I, I've really succumbed to that. And this is particularly so the older we get, and particularly, I'm going to point out a particular group of people here, parents whose kids have left the home. Because you start seeing how, oh my goodness, I, I was like that in the home. I, was, I just had a lot of rules, you know, and my kids have rejected Christ or they rejected God, and I feel really bad about it. I was thinking particularly about this one woman. We had a pastor's conference a number of years ago. This is a dear, dear woman of God. And she was just terribly conv convicted about how in her raising of her children, that she had some of these kinds of traits and that she was more harsh than really God was. And, uh, and she just stood up on the stage and just with tears, she talked about a time where she and her husband, she gathered all of her children together. They were all grown up by this point. She got on her knees before her children and she asked their forgiveness because she just felt like she had been kind of like a Pharisee to them. So there is a tendency, I think, for us in the religious community uh, to really get guilty. I have some good news for you today. And here it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, including Pharisees. I'd like to look at this passage again, but I'd like you to look at it with some new eyes. I'd like you to look at it Look at Jesus Christ. I want you to see Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. Let's go back and look at this passage. Look at first verse 1. Verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. First thing I want to point out, he came to his house. Jesus came to his house. Jesus was not in the house of the poor, the blind, the naked, and so on. He was in the house of the Pharisees. He didn't say, I'm just writing them off. He came right into their home because I see the love of Christ here. Jesus Christ comes to us. He comes to the Pharisees. He comes to you and he comes to me in our religious sins. 
That's what Jesus did. In fact, you think about this. Jesus did not come to the Romans. He did not come to the Greeks. He came to the Jews. He came to the religious community. There's a lot of reasons why God did that. But one reason, I think, is he came to those people. He just shows he loves everybody. Even the worst kind of sinners in the world, and some of the worst sinners in the world are religious sinners. And Jesus came to them. He came to their home. Second thing I noticed about this in this <clears throat> first part of that, uh, first, part, first story here, it's interesting when he talks to the Pharisees and he talks to them about, about this, you know, just obeying the rules of the Sabbath. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? I see in Jesus, Jesus uh, not really condemning them. I think what he's doing is he is appealing to the, the, the good part of them. He's, he's wanting to remind them, you know, you have affections. You care for your children. You care for your oxen here as well. And, and what he's doing, I think, is he's identifying with them in many ways and trying to uh, cultivate and to bring to life good affections that they have. And I think he does that with us as well. Then notice this then also in the parable of the wedding feast in verses 7 through 11, where he talks about, you know, don't take the, the position of honor, but, you know, take the low one. Verse 10, notice the way it's phrased, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then he concludes in verse 11, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's how he ends. God wants to exalt us. That is God's desire. His, his desire is not to push us down. He doesn't say, for everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, and everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The end result is ultimately is God desires to exalt us. And God says to us, friend, he wants us, he wants us to be blessed. And then notice also in the next parable, when he tells the story of, of uh, don't invite people, just your friends, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Notice in verse 14, he says this, and you will be blessed, and you will be blessed. This is God's desire. God's desire is our joy. God's desire is our blessing. And he goes on to say, they can't repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so it is God's intention in the good news is to bring us to a place of blessing. But there's one particular sentence in this passage. In fact, there's one word in particular that has really jumped out the page to me. And it's in this last story. In verse 23, Jesus says, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and, and this is the word, compel people to come in. Compel people to come in. This is not one of those politically correct words, compel. 
I, I went and did a little study of the word. And you know what the word compel means? It, it means to compel. That's what it means. <laughs> I mean, it really is one of those words. It's, it's force. That's what it's saying. Now, many Christians in the past, in the history of the church, it really got ugly. They took this, Augustine did this, as he said, well, that word justifies us using physical force to force people to become Christians. And that was a perversion. That was a perversion. It's an embarrassment, really. It's a shame what happened there. So what is he saying when he says to compel? I think what he's getting at is he's saying it just shows really the passion of God, the heart of God, is God is so much desiring to see people come into this. He's going to use everything within his power to motivate and to persuade people to come into the banquet. And I want to read to you a fascinating story about a man named C.I. Schofield. How many of you have ever heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? Anybody? few of you, okay. Uh, Schofield, it was one of the first reference Bibles ever written. Uh, Schofield <clears throat> was... Uh, a man who was brought up in a Christian home. His mother died when he was young, uh, very young. Uh, he eventually became a lawyer, and he did not follow Christ. And this is how the story goes. For 14 years, Schofield, a young lawyer, lived a life of worldly pleasure, forgetting God, yet far from being happy. His father and mother had been true Christians, and he had been brought up religiously, but like many a youth, the restraints of home being withdrawn, he plunged into the world and seemed to be utterly indifferent to eternal things. It was while engaged in his legal profession in St. Louis that he formed an acquaintance with a young man named Tom McFeeters, a strong Christian. One day, McFeeters called on Schofield in his office, and as he was about to leave with the doorknob in his hand, he suddenly turned around to where Schofield stood and faced him directly, said, For a long time I have been wanting to ask you a question that I have hitherto been afraid to ask, but I'm going to ask it now. Schofield said, I never thought of you being afraid. What is your question? McFeeters asked him, Why are you not a Christian? Well, Schofield was kind of taken aback by the question. And after a long pause, he said, Well, does not the Bible say something about drunkards having no place in heaven? And I am a hard drinker, McFeeters. McFeeters then said, You have not answered my question, Schofield. Schofield then said, Well, why? And he asked him again, I ask you again, Why are you not a Christian? Schofield said, I have always been a nominal Episcopalian, you know but I do not recall ever having been shown just how to be a Christian. I do not know how. To answer his friend, McFeeters had his answer. Drawing his New Testament from his pocket and taking a chair in the lawyer's office, he sat down and there and then read passage after passage from the Word of God showing God's way of salvation simply and clearly. Then he put to, to Schofield the plain and definite question, Will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Schofield responded, I am going to think about it. 
Now this is where we take a time out at this point. I thought, what would I have done at that point when Schofield said, I'm going to think about it? I'll tell you what I normally would have done. I said, well, good, good. I'm glad you could think about it. I'll pray for you. God bless you. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. That's not what this guy did. Here's what he did. And he put Schofield to the plain and definite question, will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Schofield said, I'm going to think about it. McFeeder had answered, no, you're not. You've been thinking about it all your life. Will you settle it now? Will you believe on Christ now and be saved? Schofield stood silent for a moment in deep thought. Then turning, he looked his friend full in the face and said, I will. Then the two men dropped down on their knees, side by side, in the presence of God, Schofield openly confessed his personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then and there, and while kneeling in his office was born of God and arose a saved man, a new creation in Christ. I think that's the best picture of what it means to compel. And I think it shows the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ walked into the home of this Pharisee, he had dinner with him, all of his friends. He said some pretty strong things. I mean, you think about the things that he said at that dinner table, you know. He starts talking about, you know, just the seating arrangement of people. He, he's, he's basically given some reproof along the way, quite a bit. I mean, I remember, if I, if I was there with Jesus, well, you've got some nerve bringing all these things into my attention right now. I just invite you to dinner. But Jesus was here to do something. He was here to bring people to God. That's what he was doing. And he was compelling them to come in, not in a physical way, not, not forcing them like people in the church did in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's not what he was doing. But he was compelling them by using the force of his character, his faith, his zeal, his persuasion. Uh, there is going to be a day when we stand before a holy God. There is going to, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Uh, Adam did sin. Jesus did come to save those who are children of Adam. He, Jesus did die on the cross. He really did rise from the dead. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to take away the sin of the world. He was not passive. He, he is really a strong Savior. And he came into this Pharisee's home, and he came into my home and your home as well. But there's something more about Jesus. If you look in Luke chapter 13, the last few verses here, I want you to read this. The context is really interesting. I'm going to start in verse 33. <clears throat> Jesus is actually talking to some Pharisees. And he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then is this next section, chapter 14. 
And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 14, really striking, what does it say? One day when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. In my Bible, Nuremberg Standard, they put in the side there, Sanhedrin. Uh, I think who this person was, whose home it was, was a Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the one who had the counsel that led to Jesus being crucified. That's the home he came into. Jesus came into this home to bring salvation. And I think it shows the heart of God that he will not stop for anything to see people come to the Savior. So here is the good news for us today. You are never so far away from God. I don't care what kind of sinner you are, whether you are a non-religious sinner or a religious sinner. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. And his good news is for everyone. The good news is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the good news is that Jesus Christ's message is for everyone, even for Pharisees like you and like me. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I'm going to pray here, have the band come up, and uh, let's just thank our Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, this is true. You are the Savior of the world. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, just for your example that you didn't run away from those who were going to crucify you, but you actually came right into their home. You came right into their home, and you came with love and grace and power and strength. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came full of grace and you came full of truth. Lord, we want to follow your example, and we want to thank you, Lord, that you've done that with us. I pray, Lord, today that all of us would be people that are empowered by your grace, empowered by you to live a life, and we will follow you and, like this McFeeders did with Schofield, uh, be people who will bring people to you so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess you as Lord. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have communion right now, so uh, an opportunity just to thank Uh, the one who died for our sins and rose again from the dead.